It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Tobias Elwood, Chair of the Defence Select Committee, and here to talk about Global Britain in a Competitive Age, the Integrated Review of Security, Defence, Development and Foreign Policy. And you can read that report in full. I've put the link in the blurb or the show notes. You can click on it now and download it immediately. And I say that only half sarcastically. I read it in advance of uh, my interview in Tobias, but it's the sort of thing I would have read anyway. And it's really good just for making you think about what Britain's role in the world should be. And, and the issues of security are far broader than just traditional military issues. They're about climate change, biodiversity loss. And this document is, is really broad. Now, that has strengths and weaknesses. And as you'll hear from Tobias, he is frustrated at a lack of detail in this report. But it was so stimulating to have... Uh, an in-depth conversation, and and but also that reflects the broad nature of this report and the issues about Britain's role in the world and all the different areas we can have influence in, and whether it's desirable that we do those things and those and the moral questions that come from some of these issues. But it's just so good to have a really good policy discussion that wasn't about Brexit, independence, or COVID. Now. I say that, I think all three of those things do crop up in this conversation, so it's not entirely free of that. But I guess where they're not the sole focus, it's such a relief to go, oh, there are other things we could be talking about as a society. We probably should be thinking about what Britain's role in the world is. And of course, it's sort of impossible to talk about that without thinking about what Brexit means for that. And Brexit is kind of notable by its omission in this document, but anyway, I don't want to get too far into the kind of constitutional politics of it. It makes for a very interesting basis for a discussion. And Tobias is a brilliant guest. He's chair of the Defence Select Committee. He has military experience himself. He has experienced uh, the, the personal cost uh, of terrorism. And we talk about that. It's very emotional hearing about his experience of losing his brother and, and trying to save PC Keith Palmer's life during the uh, Westminster Bridge terror attack. Um, so he has personal experience of this stuff, as well as the military experience and the political experience. And it just means that we get the benefit of, of all those things, of all those different perspectives. I began by asking Tobias about a phrase that you're going to hear a lot in the coming weeks, months and years. What does the phrase Indo-Pacific tilt mean? Well, that's a really good question, but thank you for having me on. Great to be able to talk to you and talk about, you know, Britain's place in the world. We've been waiting for this integrated view for a little while for different reasons that it's been delayed. But on the face of it, if I can just say, very much welcome the direction of travel, of us giving clear economic intent, uh, pivoting indeed to the Indo-Pacific, wanting to expand our interests, give some focus on emerging technologies. What do we want to be good at in the future? 
So from an economic perspective, it's given a real clarity of where we actually want to go, where you're going to see money invest, you know, from our universities all the way up. It's going to get a competitive world out there. So really, really pleased to see where that's all going. As a strategic document that covers foreign defence, intelligence, security, it's just, it covers so many things that people just expecting to, to pick it up and read about Trident will be very surprised that it includes stuff about climate change, biodiversity loss, girls' education, the Premier League. You know, this really feels like, as a document, a sort of a promotion of UK PLC. It's almost like a prospectus for the country. Uh, it's probably good to remind ourselves that we are. Uh, we le we're leaders, global leaders in so many uh, aspects across you know the world, whether it be financial services, life sciences. You know why is it that it's our um, vaccination that has done so well that's getting us ahead? It's because of the capability in this country, oil and gas, for example, pharmaceuticals and others. You know the BBC World Service and Premier League. You know these are things we do well, and they have influence. It all adds up to the soft power that we have, and the, the reason why people want to come and study here. And wider than that, it's our openness, our transparency, our rule of law. The standards that we uphold in this country attract businesses to want to come and base themselves here. But any integrated view has three um, objectives, if I can just go through them. Firstly, is to qualify your ambitions. You know, what are you good at? Where do you then want to go? Secondly, is confirm your threats. You know, what's going on out there that you need to be aware of? And that, I wouldn't give it so many marks. And then the first one, uh, the, sorry, the last one, putting those two together, is how do you then advance your defence posture, bearing in mind what you want to protect, you know, your ambitions and where you want to go, and those threats that are coming around the corner. And for that, again, I have a few concerns. So you're chair of the Defence Select Committee. You've been chair since January 2020. So most of that time has been during COVID. But you're someone who scrutinises the government, goes through all this stuff with a fine-tooth comb. I know this document has only existed for a few days. What's your initial reflection on it effectively as a piece of work? Does it feel rigorous? Does it feel high quality? There's no doubt about it. It's, it's, it's done a great job in, as I say, promoting what Britain uh, is wanting to do. It's got lots of ideas about where we then need to go. What I wanted to see more of, I think, is a strategy that links it all together. What is you know, the common philosophy of actually where we want, want, want to be. And for that, I think we still need the work. So, yes, it's a great blueprint as such, but we need uh, more detail. So, yes, we want to focus on the Gulf, but how do we want to focus on the Gulf? We've got two great friends there, Israel and the United Arab Emirates, for example. They've just signed a trade deal. Great opportunity for us to then take advantage of that. But the detail is not there. To, to Indo-Pacific, you started off with that. How is that going to manifest itself in reality? Not only that, but how we can actually defend our maritime interests because our trade will actually come from there. We haven't got a particularly big navy at the moment. How's that all going to work? So the detail about uh, what we, how we actually deliver this stuff is missing. Yes, that's what we need to hear. So you can say, well, perhaps it should have been in a document. I think it's giving the intent, but the detail then must come from there uh, as well. And so that's what we need to then tease out. There were some surprises. I mean, this uh, increase in nuclear <laughs> weapons uh, caught me um, uh, and I think others as well on the hop. Uh, we are replacing our complete nuclear capability to explain that's the, uh, the, the submarine, which moves from the dreadnought to, for, from the trident to the, to the dreadnought. 
Um, uh, and now what we're going to actually see is the D5 missile is a delivery system that stays the same. It'll be upgraded. The nasty bit on the top, we're getting something called the W93. That's an American um, missile. And for some reason, we've decided to buy another 60 more of these. It could very well be that when you purchased the, 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 the top bit, the W93, like when you buy a packet of six pack of Coke, you know, it's cheaper to get more than just you know, one individuals. It could be that the uh, advancement of nuclear weapons themselves has changed because you can have tactical low yield weapons as well as uh, the big city killers as well. But we don't know what's going to come around the corner. So maybe we need more of the actual weapons themselves to have in our back pocket to meet all the requirements. Or it could be it's just a mad statement of us saying, look how strong we are. I don't know. We, I've written to the defense secretary to get more answers. So hopefully they'll come soon. I mean, that's the bit that that was where the initial media response was, was was on nuclear weapons. And you're right, not necessarily just on the renewal, but lifting that cap from 180 to 260 warheads. Given that we've never used any of our nuclear weapons, why do we need more of them? It, it does seem that element yeah, you, seems you, odd. The increase seems odd. You, you make a powerful point, and it needs to be explained because your deterrent is your deterrent. You don't really want to use these things, and therefore you've made that statement already. Had we moved to another mechanism to deliver, let's say using airplanes, or indeed as the Americans do, airplanes and then ground silos and submarines, then you, you could perhaps argue things in a different way. But ultimately, I like the idea. I'm, in fact, I came into politics because Britain does take such an important stance on the international stage. We, you know, are be seen to do the right thing. People follow us, use us as a bar, if you like, of, 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 uh, of standard. When we turn to the Iranians and say, we don't want you to build a nuclear weapon, we know what they're going to say back to us now. Hang on a minute, you just breached all your agreements too. You're actually increasing your numbers. So what does this do for non-proliferation? It's, it, there's some big questions to be asked there. And it does seem a bit of a contradiction to, to laud ourselves as uh, a soft superpower and then effectively to, to abuse that position to increase our own nuclear arsenal. Yeah, like I said, it could, there could be some you know, technical uh, uh, reason as to why this is being done. Uh, it could be a block you know, build that is being done this way. But without the explanation, we simply don't know. And we are left guessing. And the rest of the world will, will not wait for that detailed information. They will simply see us. You know, moving uh, and making the world perhaps arguably, you know, more dangerous because uh, we are increasing our stockpiles. China is doing the same. Russia has now broken up its agreement with the United States and so forth. So the world is getting more dangerous. That's not where we really want to go. And the other aspect of the hard power is absolutely I agree that we need to take advantage of new technologies that's coming over the horizon. You know, drones, AI, um, autonomous platforms. But just because new threats emerge that we can use these tech capabilities for doesn't mean to say that the old ones have disappeared. And there's a long list of kit, which has now you know, been promoted through the, the, the media, that we are going to lose tanks. Um, we're going to lose uh, the F-35s. and They're going to be dropped in numbers. Typhoons, frigates, um, armored fighting vehicles, 10,000 troops. This is uh, you know, conventional hardware, good capability, that isn't just used to uh, you know, fight wars with, it's actually used to upstream engage, to make friends with our alliances, to strengthen those bonds, to prevent the battle from happening in the first place. You, know, you can't deliver aid using drones. You can't do vaccination programs in you know, the heart of Africa um, using UAVs. It, it doesn't work. 
So we need to get that balance right. There's a couple of other elements on nuclear as well, one of which is, and you referenced it there, the the agreement between Russia and America, a hugely hopeful moment in the Bush presidency where he and Putin sit down and agree to decommission nuclear weapons. That was one of those moments where those of us who support in principle having a nuclear deterrent because unilateral nuclear disarmament isn't the way to get other people to get rid of theirs, that was a hugely hopeful moment. The world has changed a lot since then. But I have always felt that one of the reasons Britain has held on is that it helps, uh, well, you don't want to unilaterally disarm and, and therefore, by definition, strengthen people like Vladimir Putin, who have a lot of nuclear warheads. But it feels like we're not really leveraging that to get other people to decommission anymore. No, and this goes back to my point of there being lots of ideas, interesting ideas. How do they stitch together? How do they make it clear where we want to go from a global Britain perspective? So on the as a side of it, on the economy side, very pleased, very, very clear. We want to move to the digital domain, you know, advance in the science capabilities, you know, strengthen our base already. That's what we can be good at. You know, we don't make products. We don't make widgets any, any, anymore as such. We can do these very high level, high tech capabilities. That's exactly where we need to go. When it comes to security, though, it is a bit fuzzy and it's unclear as to what messaging that we're sending to the rest of the world, not least our allies as well, because I think they're slightly you know, surprised by this too. And there's another dimension on that same page, page 77 of the Integrated Review Report, that actually suggests that if there's a biological, chemical or cyber attack, mass attack on the UK, we would respond using nuclear weapons. Now, that, again, is a massive change in you know, doctrine when it comes to nuclear you know, power. And uh, again, something we really need to discuss with our NATO allies. You know, if you think about it, the last 30, 40, 50 years, there's been a big international conversation and understanding about just how dangerous nuclear weapons are. Every effort has been made to sign treaties, bring those numbers down. And suddenly we're going, wow, doesn't matter anymore. Let's just buy this kit. And not only that, we're going to use it in different circumstances. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm simply saying that we need to have a wider debate about it. How do you think our NATO allies will, will feel about that particular passage, saying that we would use nuclear weapons in response to a non-nuclear attack? I think it's a reflection absolutely of the dangerous world we're now existing in, because you could e easily do as much harm through a bio attack. You know, if you think about the pandemic itself, if there were to be some form of bio attack that was limited, let's say, to the entirety of London, that would equate to a nuclear attack as well. And so you can understand the logic there in saying, right, because we have our uh, nuclear deterrence, we're going to expand that out to make sure that anybody that wishes us harm, you know, you could, we could retaliate. So I, I understand that, but it's still a conversation, given the scale of it, the gravity of it, that we should really have conducted in Parliament, clarity as to where this goes. And then, of course, that, that articulates and amplifies the purpose of it. You talk about a deterrence, the deterrent only works if you tell people you've got something in your back pocket you're willing to use. There's no point pulling out after the fight. Cynics might say, oh, this is Boris Johnson wanting to look tough. You know, this is this is consistent with his political approach, which is to, uh, you know, talk big and to show off. And although there's some noble stuff in this document, all this stuff about having more nukes and we'll nuke you if you launch a chemical attack is bluff and bluster. Yeah, I... I understand where that comes from let's hope we get some more detail and uh, clarity as to where this goes uh, like i said we, we do need to to make it very very clear how this all does uh knits together otherwise it is just a loose connection of ideas without a grand strategy that sort of brings it all together 
There are other political implications on nuclear. I'm thinking in the UK and, and the importance of the union is another thread that runs through the document. The SNP are vocally anti-nuclear and that was a huge theme of their 2014 referendum. We saw Nicola Sturgeon's response, the initial response to this document was while Boris Johnson is increasing the nuclear arsenal, uh, we're enshrining, I think it was the rights of the child, but n nuclear weapons is a, is a major flank of the SNP's argument against Scotland staying in the UK, not just because the, our nuclear weapons are positioned in Scotland or off the coast of Scotland, but also because they, they say morally the people of Scotland have never been comfortable. Now, there are people across the UK that have never been comfortable with nuclear weapons, but it does seem, again, another issue where perhaps the side effect of this has devastating consequences for the union itself. There's no doubt about it. If we see the the, the union um, fragmented in this way, then it would have devastating impact. You touched on it yourself. So much of our military capability is in Scotland itself, which you know where these the uh, the boats are kept and from where they operate from, and and I think have done an incredible job. I I would go to um, I'd question slightly whether or not the view of nuclear weapons in Scotland is absolutely aligned with the SNP. There may be some people there. The last data I saw actually was like anywhere else across the world, you can, or in Britain, you've got those people who are very much against it, and there's others that recognise, as you spoke of before, before you know that it is uh, a, a deterrent. We're not going to drop our guard until we see everybody doing it unilaterally. Let's talk about the Indo-Pacific tilt then, <laughs> because this is a phrase, I get the feeling that this phrase is going to be used loads now in, in the coming years, and everyone's going to pretend they were always using it. I'd never heard of it before this week, but now I'm using it like I know what it means. It's, it, in short, is this about trying to rein in China a bit? The, what I, I went through all the documents, uh, the, the entire document, and played a game as to where I could insert China but China wasn't there. So freedom of speech, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of the movement of seeds, seeds weaponization of space, uh, cyber attacks, data theft, uh, um, no reciprocity when it comes to trade. You know, these are all examples where we are clearly pointing at China, but we don't dare mention the name. And that is my biggest criticism of this report. You know, I said in the chamber to the prime minister, I was hoping for a Fulton, Missouri moment. That was when Churchill in Fulton, Missouri, told the world that an iron curtain had fallen across Europe and there was a geopolitical threat, an ideological threat from the Soviet Union wanting to change our way of life and was going to, over the next couple of decades, threaten our way, way of life. And I believe the same exists now in a more subtle, more progressive manner from China themselves. They are their influence through their military, economic and technological might is growing very, very subtly, but ever so progressively. And we're going to end up with a sort of one planet, two systems, if you like, the Cold War, where there's two huge spheres of influence, with a lot of countries caught in between. Commonwealth countries, for example, not knowing which way to turn, Gift, being gifted uh, military kit, um, Huawei, for example, or technological kits as well, um, economic support, one belt, one road. And of course, once you've done that, once you've um, accepted any of that, you're then ensnared in China's uh, influence. You're not going to vote against them or stand up to them at the World Trade Organization or at the United Nations. And that's the face, if you like, of the Cold War that I see. 
And we haven't got a Western counterweight. And that's partly because the West itself has been distracted, Brexit, pandemic and so forth, but also just risk averse. We've not come to terms with the fact that China is going to grow and in our lifetime will overtake the United States as the biggest global superpower. How do we contend with this? And I was hoping that this would be the moment that we'd call China out for its behavior. Absolutely, it's not going away. We want to work with it, but they have their rules. We have ours. And yet we're supposed to be following the same rule sheet, the World Trade Organization. We're supposed to be following the same standards and values. And 10, 15 years ago, we did hope they'd mature into a global responsible citizen. That's not going to clearly happen now. Their attitude in Hong Kong, hiding the pandemic outbreak in the first place, South China Sea, treatment of the Uyghur population too. But as I say, it's this encroachment and influence and impact that they're having on so many countries around the world uh, who are tied in to their way of thinking and find it very difficult to get out. Why do you think Western states haven't been as brave as they should have been? Again, it's the economy. It's their power of the economy. So if we have, I think, 6 or 7% of our trade is with China, huge implications if, if, that, um, if, if, if that is lost. Now, it's not insurmountable, but what we're seeing then is, is you are punished if you dare stand out. So Australia, going back to the pandemic, dared to suggest that there should be an inquiry into an international investigation into the outbreak. You know, who was patient zero? Where was ground zero? Let's work it out. What's happened? And then China retaliated by putting tariffs on their agricultural products. Now, if you're, this is Australia, you know, they're a Five Eyes friend of ours. If you're a smaller country, are you going to dare challenge China? If you're, you know, you want, if you're uh, wanting um, its, uh, its um, vaccinations or you're wanting support on its uh, infrastructure projects, of course you're not. The document makes something clear that we already know. We can't really achieve any of our strategic aims without working with allies, particularly the United States. Uh, and on China, we're particularly led by the Biden administration. There's a great quote from the US Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, that China is seen as a competitor, a collaborator and adversary. I mean, there's only so long you can continue to treat them as all three, surely. Uh, yeah, I, but I think China, this is the thing. I think the United States is now maturing its view. You know, the one thing you can say about Donald Trump, much as he was an isolationist, he took the West, uh, you know, he spoke of absence of leadership. He, he really, uh, you know, denied the West the leadership that we expect from our biggest Western superpower. But he did wake the world up. We have all recalibrated our view on China. The question is, what do you do about it? And China isn't going away. And you need to understand its history a little bit just to realize why they feel they've got a vendetta against the West. You know, they, there's a century of humiliation where countries like ourselves, you know, sold opium to the country. Um, the, you know, there's the Boxer Rebellion and so forth. How do we get Hong Kong in the first place? You know, that was a clever deal that allowed us to take over a bit of China. And they haven't forgotten that. We didn't include them after the Second World War when we created all the Bretton Woods organizations. They were kept outside, even though they were a huge country. They remember all this. And it affects their decision-making today. We don't, you know, think about it. We, we gloss over all that. But that absolutely is, is part of the prism in which they're looking at things. And we need to look understand that to understand them, I think, as well. David Cameron tried a kind of charm offensive with Xi Jinping, took him for a pint or whatever they went for in a country pub. That now, again, that, that feels like a very long time ago. I mean, can, can you imagine Boris Johnson taking President Xi for a, a sandwich yeah. or cream tea and a scone? 
So if you look at what happened in the when the cold, uh, you know, the uh, Iron Curtain fell, the Berlin Wall collapsed, you know, many of these nations in Eastern Europe then uh, sort of embraced a form of democracy. It then went the other way with Putin, um, which was unfortunate, but it could still go back. You know, who knows where that goes? It's only one individual that's taking Russia in that particular direction. And I think there was this assumption by George Osborne and David Cameron that China would go the same way. They're, they weren't a threat in the same way that, that the Soviet Union was at that point. They absolutely were an economy on the rise, growing at 6 7%. Um, let's do business with them. And let's hope, even though it's Communist Party, that they will wake up to the, you know, the uh, ease and uh, the, uh, the, the market access that we're going to offer them to, to the West. And democracy will naturally, you know, bubble away. The people of China will, you know, nudge it forward. No, uh, the Chinese, the, the Chinese Communist Party have looked very carefully at what happened to the post-Soviet era and then held on to the power in China deliberately. The love for the party overshadows the love for the country. And if you don't understand that, you're probably going to get arrested in China. I will move on from this Indo-Pacific tilt, but there the, are the a couple of details in the document about it that just are really interesting um, about reinvigorating our relationship with India and our requesting to be a part to have partner status at the Association of Southeast Nations. I mean, yeah, what would that actually involve, and what could we achieve through that? Well, we have to expand out. Let's be honest. Um, you know, we we can only go so far with our European connectivity, and we need to seek other markets. India is a natural connection. The bonds that we have between the country is phenomenal, clearly of our history, our shared history and so forth. But we tend to forget, even though, you know, there's, we have a huge diaspora here, actually, when it gained, it gained its independence, it tilted towards Russia. It all, the military kit that India has is Warsaw Pact style. Um, and we didn't, you know, they, they were quite keen to sort of shrug off. And I think, draw a line between uh, you know when, when it was part of the uh, uh, the empire and when they gave their gained their independence times moved on now it's a massive democracy so important when we talk about this bipolar world with china on one block and then the west on the other that india is encouraged and, and, and nurtured and, and and brought into you know uh, uh, and encouraged to to support our way of thinking so i'm absolutely pleased the prime minister is doing his first visit there as well and that, I think, is the focal point of the of this Indo-Pacific tilt. There's a there's a page in the, in the in the document where it says the United Kingdom is part of every um, multinational organization, and it lists the WTO, the WHO, uh, the G8, the G7, the G20. I mean, there's there's at least one multinational organization that we're not a member of anymore. It seems odd to say that when Brexit hangs over everything at the moment. Yeah, and it's important to remember that half of our trade still is with the EU. And not only that, but if you know your history, our security is absolutely dependent on European security. They're, they're interconnected with continental security. And I'm afraid we still haven't grasped that. And again, that is really why this document is very helpful, but it lacks perhaps the, the, the final, final bonds that link these ideas together. How is our European security going to work? How are we going to actually manage the differences of approach between NATO and the EU? And absolutely critical that we do that. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Is there a case that, um, obviously Brexit takes us out of the European Union. We're out of the room when we're, we're talking about all those issues. But is is there a case that Brexit at least has triggered some, at, at the very least, a thinking exercise about what Britain's role in the world might be, and therefore, as a result, an unintended consequence of Brexit might be we are more thoughtful about what we can and should do globally? Yeah, it's, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it's nudged us to look more broad picture, hence, you know, looking at India and elsewhere, other markets that we can connect with and have bonds with, right across the Commonwealth, which perhaps which we haven't nurtured as, as much as we could do. That's absolutely correct. I think from a security perspective, it brings challenges because our focus has been more you know, European focused in you know, this neck of the woods. Now we're spreading much, much more thinner. Therefore, that's big questions to how we actually you know, have that umbrella of security to make that happen. And I'm just to also, oh, you, yeah. mentioned, you, mentioned, you, you mentioned that we do we're at the cross-sections of a number of international organizations. And I think that allows us uh, to provide the statecraft and thought leadership to help resolve some of the challenges and, and, and uh, some of the, the issues that we face across the world. So that's to be uh, welcomed. The concern, though, is, again, and it's in the text, is to say that we want to repair it, these international institutions, which are, are looking a bit wobbly, unable to hold errant countries to account, but doesn't say how we're going to do this. And the, the one organization that I think is the one worth advancing is the G7. Because when you add India and Australia and Korea to the G7, where you get the G10, and those three nations will be coming to Cornwall when it meets in, in June, you then get over half the world's GDP. And that's quite a powerful statement. To, if you can get those 10 people around the table saying, we're going to actually support this level of standards on trade and security. That's a counterweight to China to say, this is, the, this is the rule book that we want you to follow. Please do so. Otherwise, you can't be part of our club. And I, that's where I'd like to go. That's where I'd like to see. Recognizing China is not going to disappear. It will continue to grow. But we need to all work together and abide by the same set of standards, modernized standards that apply for today. It's interesting that you you say the G10 because there's a, there's a phrase in the document that says uh, we should secure a leadership role in the next phase of global governance. Does the government have a, a specific phase in mind? Are we talking about new institutions or new rules? What, what what do they mean by that? I think there's a recognition, as I just touched on there, that the current phase of global governance is not working. It's very very easy to have double standards, and the reason why people are concerned about China, people like myself is the fact that the errant behavior we're seeing by China goes unchecked. What organization can you take China to when it does a cyber attack against the UK? The Geneva Conventions aren't there, and they're in denial. And likewise, when there's data theft, or when they draw a map with nine dotted lines on it, 
to say this is now the South China Sea belongs to us. And we all have to then accept it. And we're having to send the aircraft carrier through along with other nations just to reinforce the fact that actually these are international seas. So this is, you know, talking about the next phase of governance. Again, we need to articulate what that's going to look at. As I say, the vehicle, I think, to pursue that is through the G7. So it's not, we don't need a new uh, international <laughs> organisation of any sort. You know, we've got the WHO for, for health. Do we need, aside from the UN or doing it through the auspices of that, some sort of cybercrime international forum? Well, the digital plane has overtaken almost terrain as being the next area of conflict. But as you imply, there are no rules there. It's, it's, it's the OK Corral. Move into space, it's even worse because nobody can actually see what's going on. You can take out satellites and blame it on something else. We need to have established rules. That's why it will get very, very chaotic indeed. The economic advantage that you can gain through doing a massive cyber attack, you know, just imagine, and in denial as well, just imagine if all our blood groups in the NHS were changed overnight and confused. You know, so many people would die because they'd get the wrong blood being given to them. And that would be a very easy way to cause harm and panic here in the UK, all done from a computer from afar. And that is the challenge that we face. How do we firstly defend ourselves? And I'm pleased to see the amount of money being poured into that. But secondly, how do you then hold another country, state or non-state, in fact, to account? And these are the questions that we need to embrace because this is now the real world. You know, the Bretton Woods organizations after the Second World War, it was pretty straightforward. Who were the bad people? Who are the good people? How you could defend yourself? Now it's got awful lot more complex and it's constant competition. Every day something is coming over the hill from a different angle, which we can't necessarily see, but means us harm. One of the dangers as well seems to be, and it's run through this conversation, the lack of political will. We sit here and say, oh, it's, you know, what China did in Wuhan and um, the, the, the way they've treated Uyghur Muslims and, and everything else. But part of the reason why we're not moving to that next phase is, is the, the lack of bravery that you mentioned earlier. So this sort of next phase of governance, it's all well and good, maybe even drawing up the rules. But what hope is there they'll be enforced? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, at the moment, who's making the political weather? It's China. And they've got pulling all the levers and doing what they want to do. They are the big bully, if you like, in the playground. And nobody goes up to them to say, you're more than welcome to stay in the playground. You know, you are a big guy, but let's, let's, let's work with you. Uh, you've got to work by the rules that have been established for a long time. And so the United Nations that you touched on, you know, the, the, the way that the, um, the UN Security Council works with its permanent membership, you know, that needs to be updated. You know, should Germany or Brazil be on there? Should India be on there, for example? These are big, big questions. Nobody's dared to touch them because they're so complicated. We've just put it into the long grass. And the consequence of that is that China takes advantage every single day of these organizations unable to keep them into check. And the World Health Organization is a great example. Could you imagine in another time? let's say this pandemic to be repeated next year, that you would allow an entire year to go on before you had access to where that next pandemic started from. You know, that would be absolutely wrong. You'd want to get in there straight away. The World Health Organization, shut it down, do all the bits and pieces. And yet 
the WHO only got into China a couple months ago, you know, long after. And they weren't even didn't have access to speak to the original people or go into that Wuhan Virology Institute, which many people think is where it all started from. This year, the government announced they're going to cut our international development budget from the enshrined 0.7%, one of David Cameron's big achievements. This document pledges to restore it to 0.7%, but, quote, when the fiscal situation allows. Given we've just borrowed more money than we ever have at any point in our history, if you had to guess which year in the future the UK will restore its 0.7% spend on international development, what year would you pick? Uh, well, I don't see what it's going to go at all. I just make the case that, you know, soft power and hard power are two parts, two sides of the same coin. Jim Mattis said, you know, the less you spend on soft power, the more I have to spend on bullets. And that's a crude way of summing it up. You know, soft power, our soft power in places such as in, you know, in Africa, in the Middle East and so forth, it helps save lives. It improves education. It strengthens governance. And when you remove those projects, let's say uh, in uh, places like in Nigeria, it's going to be Boko Haram that benefits. If you remove projects in um, Somalia, it'll be Al-Shabaab that will say thank you. And if you pull out of Libya, Russia will then move in. And if it's not Russia, it possibly could be China as well. Syria is a great example where we just didn't have perhaps the uh, political courage as he's touched on. And when we talk about Afghanistan and Iraq, which in many military circles, we're haunted by. It prevents prime ministers from saying, I'm not going to go into Yemen because I don't want to put boots on the ground. I'll just get sucked into a 10-year vortex. I'll never be able to get out. It's not because of the military's fault. They defeat the enemy quite quickly. They're able to stabilize and create that umbrella of security. What ha happens underneath it is the problem because we don't improve governance, improve, improve indigenous capability, get them to get their knees off, 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 you know, get off the knees in order to move the country forward. And that is the soft power. And we don't do also ourselves, we do ourselves a disservice in the UK, I think, by not explaining it well enough. You get these, you know, uh, headlines with uh, Albanian belly dancers receiving money. And that just does the entire, just does the entire, um, you know, um, brand a bad name, which is unfortunate because there are good projects that work well, but it must work in synergy. Again, going back to grand strategy, strategies. You know, if we do governance work in um, or differed work in uh, Kenya, how does that work with our military support on security? And then Doug Pinson movement into developing trade. You can see there, you know, you can develop a grand strategy anywhere by all these three aspects, trade, governance, you know, so soft power, hard power, all nicely working together. You've been on both sides of this. You're an ex-military man. You've been a minister and now you chair the select committee. Do you think politicians in general understand the military? That's a really good question. Um, and I think the answer, the simple answer is no. You know, you go back to Churchill's um, cabinet and because of the war, you can understand that half of his cabinet had military experience. If he wanted to use the military for anything, everybody would go, no problem. I haven't got a problem with that. No stigma attached to it. Thatcher, you know, years later, same. I checked. Half of her cabinet had military experience. There's only one person in the in, who had military experience um, in the current cabinet. So when we say, let's use our military to help with the pandemic, I know for a fact it took a little while for us to, you know, cabinet themselves to accept 
that these aren't strategists. These are people trained in an emergency response. These are people that have that uh, structure to be able to come in and provide that support, the flexibility and uh, the, the, the capability uh, that can be used in a moment's notice. It took a while for, I'm afraid, the, um, that, that stigma, that sense of, oh, I, I'll, I will fail if I have to lean on another, you know, the MOD to come in here to, to actually uh, to be overshadowed, which is quite sad. It's sad and it's bizarre that you've got, within the country, trained public servants who think about things at a strategic level, who can set up things and deliver things quickly, could roll out a vaccine or you know, flood defences or whatever it is. You know, when we had the um, fire brigade strike, the army came in, it was with the green goddesses, people might remember it well, but it always strikes me as odd that we have this amazing resource in our country that is so underused during any crisis. Because I guess they think sending the army in looks like you've lost control. I remember getting a call. I, I went over to when the Tunisia. You might remember there was a, a terrible um, attack on the beaches there and we lost some British people there. And I was sent out as the foreign minister to, to help coordinate it all. And because I'd lost my brother in the Bali bombings and I could sort of relate to it. And we had no support whatsoever from the government, back British government. But it was quite terrible. It left on my own. So I went out to make sure that everything was there to help these families and get repatriate the bodies. And I remember getting a call from number 10 saying, do you think the British people will be worried if we send military aircraft to bring the coffins back? And I, I said, of course not, of course not. But it showed you the concern and the mindset, perhaps, of how things might look if the military are called in. And it, perhaps that's, the, again, the disjoint between those who have exposure, a history with the military, and perhaps the younger generation that, because our army is so small now, um, have less contact. I remember sitting on my grandfather's knee and he telling me about the medals that he got and so on. That must have had a you know effect on me. I ended up joining the army, but of course that doesn't happens less and less now because our armed forces are so small. Although there are a lot of ex-military, not a lot, but there are certainly prominent ex-military people in. Parliament and politics now. You saw yeah, yeah. Tom Tugendhat, James Cleverly, Dan Jarvis. Uh, there's someone else I'm forgetting. But quite a few. Quite a few. Yeah. There, it, it's, it's changed. When I came in, there was just a handful of us. And now it's it's moved across. It's got back to there. And that's great. I mean, that's actually what makes Parliament fantastic, is that people are coming from all walks of life. And they you know bring their skills and experiences to, to the fore. Um, but ultimately, I'm afraid, around the cabinet, but most importantly, within the cabinet construct as well, um, there is still with the stigma that the MOD is over there, uh, or we are actually over here. I, if, if, if I were to change Whitehall, I would introduce a deputy prime minister who's responsible for the arc of international uh, interest. So MOD, FCO, DFID and trade. That arc. Prime minister can do you know, domestic and Brexit or everything else. But then the deputy prime minister, and this is exactly what John Kerry did when he worked for Obama, is that he had USAID under his belt. You know, he dealt with the trade as well. And he was, and then uh, uh, Barack Obama just told John, get on with it. You know, it's, it's your bag. And he meant he had all the tools there. He could work out strategies, uh, grand strategies in different areas, make it all work together. We still, I'm afraid, too siloed. It's got a lot better, but it's still too siloed. 15, 20 years ago, I remember Tony Blair saying that the biggest threat to the British state was radical Islam. That's probably not true anymore, is it? It's probably climate change or biodiversity loss. 
certainly climate change, I'd agree. Um, and again, I don't think that's pretty spelled out. You know, when sea levels rise and 80% of the world lives within about, you know, 15, uh, 50 miles of the sea, that'll have huge impact on uh, people on, and migration movements. When deserts start to grow and, and eat away at, at fields and crops and things like that, huge impact as well. And it's not isn't just the sea levels and, and deserts. It's actually the chaos of weather as well. You know, the fires that we saw in uh, Australia, do you remember those? And then in California too, we're going to get ridiculously hot weather here. And then it's going to get very, very cold too. We're not going to be used to that. We have a very temperate climate. And that'll impact on everybody and, or, and what will we do. This kind of place comes to a grinding halt. Again, I think, you know, the army doesn't get called out quickly enough to help get the snow moved away. So it'll, it'll actually impact on everybody. And, you know, we have an opportunity in, um, uh, in November to change that, you know, the, to, to get a signatories. Um, but it's going to be tough. There's no doubt about it. And, yes, yeah, so that's a, a major threat. But ultimately, the, the progressive one, from an economic perspective, it takes us back to China, I'm afraid. Traditionally, we'd always seen security as terror, policing, army, that sort of thing. But now it does include things like climate change. It's a broader uh, horizon, really, about the things that do affect our security and how we think of our own security as citizens and as countries. It feels like we've been really slow to catch on to this. Yes, I think it's important that we have that sense of purpose and that drive. And I hope this is this paper, which has been so long overdue, can start to articulate that. But as we touched on before, this is almost like the teaser. All we actually need to do is then advance these. So, you know, the fact that you and I are having this discussion, wider debate about this as well, hopefully that'll be all sort of factored in so more people can participate and put their view, view across. What's absolutely critical, you know, what does it mean to be British? That is... Unless we reconfirm that, particularly after lockdown, if I can say this, particularly after we've been tucked away for so long, just a reminder what our standards are, what our values are, what it is that makes us British, what it makes us slightly unique, different, not in a bad way or a good way, but just, you know, underlining the, those bonds uh, of what's important to us. That's so, so critical. It's, I think it's something that we need to be reminded of. Otherwise, you can lose your way of, of, of you know, what you're about. Pre-pandemic, we had seen an increase in uh, terror attacks in the UK, one of which you saw with your own eyes. And I can't imagine what that was like for you as you tried to save PC Keith Palmer's life. I mean, most people will never see, will never be present at the scene of a, a terror attack. And I know you have a military background and you lost your brother in the Bali attack. I mean, it feels like you personally have seen so much of this stuff i mean so few people will have seen what you've seen with your eyes and had to deal with that and had to process that emotionally i mean that i guess what i'm trying to get at is that the, the genuine real horrors of these things you probably know better than anyone else yeah it's it was a really interesting journey that i went on personally when i lost my brother in bali because you do see this stuff on tv and you think oh isn't it terrible but five minutes later you're making a cup of tea and you've moved on but when it's your brother, you know, you think, well, it actually can happen to me and it can happen to somebody I know. And it just puts a different dimension on the whole thing. And then makes me wonder, why is it that people are doing these things? How can somebody take a peaceful religion such as Islam, twist it in the way that they do, and then spit out these, these, these evil people that are able to take lives? Mm -hmm. And it made me um, look more carefully mm -hmm. to what we're doing 
to challenge um, the uh, uh, the use of e extremism, and we're not doing enough. We even today we're not because you know there's there's an absence of a papal figure, if you like, as there is in um, you know the Catholic Church or whatever, or strong voices uh, to say actually their interpretation of the Quran is not what you should be going. You know, you will not go to heaven and be rewarded um, uh, and get fast-tracked to paradise uh, if you take a Western life. That isn't going to happen. And yet, I'm afraid there are very young, often, you know, volatile people who are persuaded to do these things as, as those young boys that killed my brother. And how do, you, how do you deal with that as an individual? I'm thinking of whether, whether you can find forgiveness, whether you can find some sort of peace in time. It's most people's idea of hell is losing a family member, particularly in such a way. How did you recover from yeah, it? Yeah, uh, you don't, and it's with you all the time. Um, I mean, my parents are affected more because you just don't ever expect to bury, um, you know, one of your children as such. It, in, in a positive way, it drives me forward. It gives me focus. It's made, you know, we talk about who we are and what do we want to achieve. Um, it's made me very firm in, in what I want to, what I stand for uh, and what I want us to do. This is why perhaps I get a little bit frustrated um, uh, to um, when I see us not Britain, you know, doing as much as it could do. You know, we are in such a strong position, the connectivity that we have across the world, the standards that we observe. There's so much going on around the world and absence of leadership. And I want us to step forward and do more. And I get frustrated when we're not. And, uh, you know, we're not the biggest country in the world anymore, but our thought leadership, our understanding of the world around us because of our reach, our connectivity, our history, we can see some of the answers, some of the solutions. And that's why the United States likes us, because we give an alternative perspective, a knowledge perspective. And uh, if we don't do it, which countries will? Because uh, too many will hesitate. We don't normally. And we need to get to back to that way of thinking, show a bit more determination or political courage as you spoke about earlier. But it's also courage that you've shown yourself. And I wonder, in this situation when you're in New Palace Yard, just that horrific situation, how fast these things happen, you just leap into action and try and save PC Palmer's life. In that situation, no one knows how they're going to react. And some people just freeze, some people run. You just threw yourself into the middle of that situation and, and tried to save him. Did that military training help? Oh, completely. I, I mean, I'm in the, the reserves and it, it you go through drills every year, um, MATS training, as it's called, uh, military aptitude tests. And that allows you to do um, you know, uh, resuscitation and so forth and, and deal with those situations. So it, it, so it, it was that. I have to say it wasn't that was as difficult as dealing with my brother because that was personal, you know, in, in dealing with that. When I arrived and found my brother, um, I had to identify him. I had to go through 200 dead bodies one by one you know in the in the hot sun until and all the bodies were scarred and charred and so on and, and that was for me that was the tough the tough uh, uh thing to do um and you know very very difficult indeed so um yeah very very difficult it's just a, 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 you know i don't think i've ever known anyone that's had such personal experience of this stuff and uh, more than once, you know, it's, it, you've been through an incredible amount. Yeah. It's uh, not been easy, not been easy at all, but as I say, it, it drives you, it gives you a, a, a sense of purpose. And my sister's no different as well. She's uh, 
she's a teacher like my brother was and um you know wanting to get the better the best encourage the best out of people and uh, so she thoroughly enjoys doing that uh, Tobias, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for giving us your your expertise in the field and uh, your the benefit of your, of your knowledge on on this. Just in closing, I guess this document is a, an attempt to get towards Britain's role in the world. On the whole, I know there's detail missing for you. I know there are things in there that uh, it should say that it doesn't. Uh, funding it is another matter entirely. But on the whole, do you think it gets the tone right on on where Britain should position itself, which is effectively as a soft superpower, albeit with an increasing number of nuclear weapons? Yeah, I think there are, there are some curious details in there which we've discussed. But in general, I'm actually pleased it's out there. You know, there's a sense of purpose to it. It can be finessed, but so be it. You know, we're, we've jumped in the car. We've got most of the right clothing, most of the right gear. Let's get going. Let's sort it out as we go. <laughs> and if we need more stuff, we'll just pick it up along the way. We can Absolutely. Stop off and pick up more clothes. <laughs> Tobias, thank you very much. Thanks very much indeed. Well, there you go. Tobias Elwood, as brilliant as I thought he was going to be. And, and it just meant that document and being able to talk to Tobias about it. I mean, you can have a really good discussion about, you know, if you think about all the things that come out of that, about... The, the nuclear weapons and, and what increasing our cap means and the messages that sends and the consequences of that, let alone the moral discussion about nuclear weapons and whether we should have them at all, about how you deal with China, not just in the wake uh, of the pandemic, uh, about uh, our at-sea presence in places like the Indo-Pacific and the other organizations we're trying to get involved in, how we're championing involvement in all these other organizations when we just left the EU. So there's just so much politics in there. The 0.7%, the weaponization of space was something we didn't talk about in great detail. That feels like an episode all in itself. Um, and climate change, biodiversity loss, all these other things that come out of this discussion were just... Uh, I just found it so stimulating. Um, that may be because I am housebound and have been for a year. Um, but I always find with these podcasts, it's just so good to really focus in on an area. You know, every interview is different. And sometimes with a guest, you're talking about their whole career. And there are, or there are highlights you want to talk about. With Margaret Becky, you want to talk about 1994 or being foreign secretary. Really good to do an episode based on a document, I hope. I certainly felt that. You may feel very differently. You may think, nah. But I think it's great when you get a report like this, it gives you some meat to kind of go off and to interrogate, to pick apart, to say what's missing. Uh, and, and often that's the essence of politics, is what's not in there as well as what is. Um, but I hope you enjoyed it. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, as lots of you have. Ollie got in touch. Uh, he enjoys the podcast. Thank you very much, Ollie. And he uh, listens to it during lockdown walks and weekly house cleans. Uh, and he will endeavours to listen to it when he's uh, weekly commute to London. Sorry, not his weekly commute. He listens to it during weekly house cleaning. His, his commute may be weekly. I don't want to give away too many personal details about my listeners, lest they be identified. Uh, perish the thought that people be outed as listeners to this podcast. Uh, but he listens to his weekly house cleans, and uh, hopefully he will listen again on a commute to London when it's safe to do so. Um, so also, lots of you got in touch with some really good suggestions for guests, many of which I have already approached. So it, it, that is a good thing because it shows that... Uh, 
you're on the right lines or, or that I am anyway in terms of what you would like to listen to but do keep those suggestions coming in and don't be shy if you're a politician I'm thinking particularly about May and these elections and please register to vote by post I, I know I don't want to become boring about this I can't believe there isn't a major postal vote drive going on at the moment and I'm not talking about individual parties writing to their supporters because of course they're going to do that I mean non-party organisations there should be TV adverts and radio adverts and billboards. Anyway, I'm on a one-person crusade to get people registered to vote by post because I think come May, regardless of whether people have had the vaccine or not, I still think it's a bit odd we're going to tell people to go to polling stations and expect everyone to feel okay with that. So register to vote by post. But what I was going to say about May is there is Holyrood, London, Cardiff, Police and Crime Commissioner, Local elections, all different sorts of officers are going to be elected and re-elected in May. So I want to try and get a whole range of candidates, not just the big names, but interesting candidates for different types of officers. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I wouldn't usually put myself forward. If you're standing in a particularly interesting ward or there's something about your candidature, candidature that is different um, or any sort of quirk, if you think, oh, actually... You know, I'd love to tell the story of what it's like to represent in this area, or I'm standing down, or I'm standing for the first time, and there's a reason for it, or whatever that is. However you interpret that, if you've sat there and thought, oh, I'd love to actually talk about what this is like, then please get in touch. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And if you think of someone along those lines, then please do as well. Thank you for all your lovely emails. Please leave an iTunes review. Thank you to Tobias Elwood for being such a brilliant guest. Do leave it, and I think I've now repeated <laughs> I might as well say it twice. Not that it's the most important thing, but do leave a review on iTunes, please. And uh, I'll see you next week. Draw.